0: Chosen in Him, Ephesians part 3 from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 to 6. So as we continue our series on Ephesians, last week I mentioned that verses 3 to 14 is one whole unit without pause. It's this amazing bit of scripture revealed, inspired by God and the Apostle doesn't come up for air. He's just, it's its like a hydrant and we have to drink it in. And so to enable us, to help us in the English language, it was sort of broken up in sentences and commas so that we can eat it in small chunks. So what we try to do here in this passage is, is, is break it up. Um, I sort of compare this bit of scripture like a, a glorious early morning African safari as uh, as the sun is rising and then you open your eyes and you're in paradise and you're saying, wow. So we started with verses 1 to 3 where we are reminded of just how much we are, are truly blessed. And we clarified that in verse 3 Paul is not writing about our physical health or financial riches, material wealth, all of that. Paul is writing about the spiritual blessings, these blessings that we have in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And it's not just one time in the future that we will enjoy them, they are ours now through Christ. These spiritual blessings are ours to live by, not just in eternity sometime in the future, but now in the present through the Holy Spirit. Now as we study them, as we study this section and we study a little bit more about our blessings that we will be talking about, let us not be like an elderly couple who were found dead in their apartment in, in California, in LA. Um, autopsies revealed that both had died of severe malnutrition, although investigators found a total of $40,000 uh, stored in paper bags in a closet yet they died of hunger. Let us not be like them, for as Christians, we, like this elderly couple, are very rich. And as Paul reveals to us what these riches are, let us put them to use rather than stuffing them in a closet. Only when we do this can we become spiritually mature and bring glory to God. So we'll look at some of these blessings in order for us to live the abundant life that Jesus promised us. Having said all that, while acknowledging that it is a glorious passage, it isn't an easy passage to take in. One thing perhaps is struggling to understand it but if that's a struggle, accepting the truth that it teaches is even more difficult. For hundreds of years, I would say about 400, 400, 4 to four hundred and fifty years, these and other verses have been interpreted in all sorts of different ways. Here we are dealing with the hotly debated doctrine of election. Oh, yeah. We ask, how could God choose us and yet still offer us a choice that we must make? Not only that, but then hold us responsible for the choice we make. Ultimately, it reflects the struggle between human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. And there are two main camps. One side is the reformed and the big exponents of the reformed position, uh, John Calvin, from which Calvinism comes, and then you have others like C.H. Spurgeon, uh, Whitfield and and others. And on the other side, on the other side of the ring is Armenian position uh, held by Jacob Arminius, John Wesley and the Methodist Church and Salvation Army and all of that. Now it is sad that the debate that, that this debate has been going on for 500 years and unfortunately it has brought a lot of angst and division within the, the church it isn't just an intellectual disagreement but it's people hold to these positions very passionately and a seminary a seminary professor once said to Warren Reesby he said try to explain election and you may lose your mind But try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. So sorry guys, we're going to have to struggle with this. We're going to have to get our head around it, understand it because it is in the scriptures. This is not something that I made up or indeed Calvin or Arminius or anybody made up. This is in the scriptures. So let's get stuck into it. First of all, chosen, verse, the first part of verse 4, chosen. For he chose us in him. John Calvin rightly said that election is the foundation and first cause of all blessings. It is a fact that the doctrine of election runs throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, were all chosen quite apart from any personal merit. When we come to the New Testament, the doctrine of election is not raised as a as a subject of controversy or speculation, and it's not set in opposition to the will get of man. And. and while we try and get a head area and understand this apparent paradox, the New Testament does not seek to resolve it. It leaves the tension there. And this is highlighted in two, in two chapters, uh, especially in the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans. Firstly, Paul emphasises the sovereign purpose of God in Romans chapter 9. And then man's responsibility in Romans chapter 10. and they are both held there. Jesus himself told us that we are chosen by God. In John 6 Jesus said, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them." that's John 6:44. And then in John 6:37 he said, "All those the Father gives me will come to me." And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. This clearly states that you can't come to Christ unless you are drawn by the Father. And yet, Jesus also appealed directly to the will of the individual by saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And then... One of the most well-known verses in scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It appears that, it appears to say that we can never become a Christian until we choose, we choose to come to him, we decide to come to him. So what is it? The Father draws us or it's our decision? That's the tension, right? Did he decide or do we decide? So this debate is also known as the debate between election and free will. The thing is that ever since the fall, ever since a rebellion in the Garden of Eden through Adam and Eve, our so-called free wills have been affected by sin. We have a free will in the sense that we are capable of making moral choices, decisions. But our choices are impacted by numerous factors. Sin, which covers a lot, our upbringing, our our culture, our intellect, our education. So so human beings do not truly have a free will as such, as as commonly defined. We do have a will, but it is not as free as we think. That's the problem. Having said all that, having said all that, I know you're all sitting on the edge of your seats now. Most evangelicals agree that it is God. Both sides, both camps agree that it is God who initiates the activity of salvation. The Calvinists call it, the Reformed call it irresistible grace. What is that? Well, God not only not knocks on the door, but he has the key to open it and sometimes even smash it down to get into your heart. That's what he did to the Apostle Paul and many others. While Armenians have another version and they call it prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. So this is when God knocks on the door, but the lock is on your side of the door. So you don't have to open it if you don't want it, if you don't want to. In other words, God's grace is resistible, which is the Arminian position. Again, I'll, let me repeat that: that. Both sides recognise that God has to, first and foremost, he has to come knocking. Because if we are left to our own devices, we are lost. Yes, through general revelation, Paul says that we are left with no excuses but to acknowledge that someone amazing created all of this, designed it and put it all together. He talks about this in Romans 1. But from that point of acknowledging that somebody created, that leaves me just with a position called deism. Yes, somebody made it. But then, to, to, to want a relationship w- with the Creator is something else. Because, you see, next thing you know, He is going to tell me this being outside, which we call God, is, is gonna want to run my life and, and want me to live like a Puritan. He's gonna crap my style. No, thank you. So I'll just leave it God there, but I don't want any relationship with Him. That's basically agnosticism, deism, that sort of position. And this is why the Apostle Paul quotes the psalmist in Romans, in Romans 3 9 to 11. He said, For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Everybody. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. And, and the Apostle Paul is quoting the psalmist here. So, although it is, it is a little bit hard, difficult to, to reconcile these in our minds, We have to accept this amazing fact. The good news is offered to us and if we don't respond, we will never obtain the benefit of it. But if we do respond, if we believe in him, then we discover this great fact that it was God who began the process all along. It was he who chose us and we have been drawn to him by his spirit at work In us. It gets even more interesting. If that's not amazing enough. Because the second part of verse 4 says, Beforehand for a purpose. Chosen beforehand for a purpose. Beforehand when? Before the creation of the world. To be holy and blameless in his sight. This is another mind-boggling statement, isn't it? Try and get your head around this. Before we existed, before there was earth, before time, we were chosen. No matter how far back you go, the statement stands. You and I were chosen. There, there is no struggle with identity here. I don't know who I am. No, you were chosen. We are no flukes or afterthoughts in God's outworking, but very much plan from before time began. We, again, understand that we are dealing with an eternal Being with whom there is no past, no future, but only an eternal present. That's where God lives. He lives in the eternal present. And when we die, when we go to him, when he returns, we will also live in the eternal present. Now, in that pre-creation, in that pre creation eternity, God formed a purpose in his mind, and that purpose concerned both Christ and us. And, and please again understand that we are we were chosen in him. In him. In other words, God put us and Christ together in his, in his mind. Not separate, together. This means he determined to make us who did not yet exist his own children through the redeeming work of Christ which had not yet taken place. So, we need to realise that our faith rests completely from beginning to end on the work of God, not on anything in ourselves, and i 'll say more about that later on, so why did he choose us? Why did, why did he plan all of this? why, why? Like we said, it was no accident. He chose us for a purpose for a reason, and in the Bible. Election is always into something, into something. And the purpose of all of this is that we are to be holy and blameless. Election is not simply to salvation, saved, that's it, great, right, great. Right. No, election is to holiness of life, the fact that we are a chosen has to be an incentive to holiness, not an excuse for sin. You can't go thinking like, oh, well, since I'm one of the chosen, I can now do what I want. I've got a whole path. If you think like this, I would be doubting you are in fact chosen or saved at all. If that's your thinking. But looking at it the other way, holiness of life is actually evidence of our election. Now, I know, sinless perfection is impossible this side of heaven, but submission to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is a good indicator. And what a fantastic privilege when you think about it, when you get your head around it, what a fantastic privilege. But is it is a privilege We have been chosen, but it is a privilege that carries that responsibility. In verse 5, again, you still with me here? In verse 5, predestined. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Again, that word, controversial word, predestination. It simply means to ordain beforehand or to predetermine. In the Bible, it refers primarily to what God does for his own, for those who are saved. Also, let me just say that the Bible does not teach that people are predestined to go to hell because this word only refers to God's people. So there's a couple of elements here. He predestined us in love to be his sons, and when he says sons, daughters as well, okay? According to the purpose of his will. In other words, from beginning to end, it is entirely it is entirely of God. His love began it, he purposed it, literally according to his pleasure and will. In other words, it gives him pleasure to do so. To do what? To adopt us. Adoption wasn't actually a, a in Judaism. The the, the Jews didn't know much about adoption. Adoption was a Roman and and, and not a Jewish practice. An adopted son had position by grace, not by right. And yet he was brought into the family with the same footing and given the same right as any of the other kids in the family. This is how God is able to take care of all of our past failures and our shame. And he then produces someone who is holy and blameless and adopts us into his family. So the change, this, this new person, this new being, this new creation is by a family relationship, adoption. Maybe some of us maybe some of us are struggling to believe all of this. So we ask, why should he see anything in me which would motivate him to do all of this? And, and then and then you've got the other side. Then you've got others if you tell people this I'm chosen of God was it? Okay. Yeah. To believe yourself chosen of God is about the most arrogant thought you could have. This kind of thinking is, is very human because we think immediately we think of merit. We think of merit, that we deserve it. But the Bible does not point to merit. The Bible always points towards grace. And merit and grace are very different. Merit is about works, it's about performance. Are you good enough? Are you worthy enough? No one of us is worthy. It was only one who was worthy, right? We just sung about that. And we need to move away from that merit system and move towards his grace and mercy, his adoption. Being chosen in him. It's a bad mistake to think there is something in us which God is after. There isn't anything in us. The ground of his choice is the kind of God he is. It's not about who we are. Another argument is, why would God choose certain individuals and not others? You heard that one, right? That doesn't seem right to me because everyone deserves to go to heaven. That's called universalism, uh, where everyone, including Hitler and Stalin, are playing their harps in heaven right now. In fact, the opposite is true because no one deserves to be saved. I repeat that. We have all sin and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. As a result, as a result, God would be perfectly just in letting us, all of us, spend eternity in hell. You want justice? That's justice. Right there. However, God chooses to save some of us in his son, through his son. and, And he's not being unfair to those who are not chosen because they are still receiving what they deserve. God's choosing to be gracious to some is not unfair to the others. No one deserves anything from God, therefore no one can object if he does not receive anything from God. For example... If I go out on the street and I have two, there's a group of five people that I see standing around and I've got two $100 notes. And out of those five, I give one person $100 note and the other person another $100 note. Are the other three going to be upset? Probably. Do they have the right to be upset? No, not really. Because I didn't owe them any money in the first place. If I owed them money, yeah, sure, but I didn't owe them any money. I simply decided to be gracious to some of them. Again, is this hard to understand? Maybe. And some think that God's predestination is is based on the, the choices he knows that the elect will make. This points towards the foreknowledge where in his foreknowledge he knows who will or won't receive his son and he makes his choice based on that. But that still makes people the ultimate choosers, doesn't it? But biblically it is the other way around. God chooses some based on his purposes and then in response to his work in their lives, they choose him. His choice is first and foremost. Again, without God's election, no one would ever turn to him. Why would they? Again, many object to election on the grounds that it stifles missionary and evangelistic activity. After all, if God has chosen to save some, then they will be saved whether or not anyone shares the gospel with them. So why bother? Why embarrass yourself? Why the sacrifice? Why go to another country? Why suffer injustice? Why? As so many of our brothers and sisters have done and are doing. This is something, this is an argument that William Carey had to confront before he went to India. But this argument overlooks the truth that hearing and believing the gospel is the means that God uses to save those he has predestined. Paul knew that God had chosen to save people through the gospel. That is why he suffered, proclaiming it, suffering passionately. He did it. If he believed the other stuff, then why did he have to go? Just let God do it. But he said this. He said, therefore, I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect, he said. I go out there because I know there are elect people out there that God has chosen. Why? Because that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So in his plan of salvation, God uses you and me. We could be friends, they could be our co-workers, They could be our children. They could be our parents. We are the tools, imperfect as we might be, to to share his news, the great news. Through evangelism, God draws people unto himself from every nation, from every tongue, from every tribe. If God does the electing, then that frees us to share the gospel without pressure or without fear or failure. Oh, I didn't do it good enough. Oh, I didn't do it well enough. Maybe I should have said this. Maybe I should have. And that's okay. We need to perfect ourselves. We need to study. We, we need to be sharper tools, not dumb tools, in order to be able to present the gospel. 1 Peter 3.15 But, but without the pressure then, without the fear of failure, we, we share the good news clearly, we have been obedient, and that's already success because we have been obedient to God's calling. And the results we leave to God. The results we live in because it is this Holy Spirit. We don't convert anybody. God does. And lastly, in love. In love, verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. As we have already seen, uh, the emphasis of the whole section is on God's grace, God's will, God's purpose, God's choice. And yet the the unifying aspect of all of this, the, the mortar, the glue that holds it all together, is God's amazing grace, his love. Why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose us? Because he loves us. This is why Paul would declare to the Corinthians, but the greatest of these is what? His love. Please note that this this love is not random, it's not cryptic, enigmatic, capricious or... Or or this love is some type of energy source that we tap into by mustering up enough feelings toward God. It is a truth to be believed in your head and in your heart. It comes in one great package in Christ. In Christ. The Father loves the Son in the most perfect possible way you can imagine. The Father loves the Son and He loves us in the Son. If you are not a Christian, therefore, you cannot possibly claim these blessings. You cannot buy them, you cannot discover them, you cannot sign up for a course about them. There is no way you can appropriate them unless you are in Christ. There is no other way. But if you are in Christ, these are Freely given, these are part of the package. In and through the son he loves. So nothing should stop us from having these blessings every moment of every day and we we went through some of these last week. These blessings. Finally, I like what Spurgeon said. Just as the rails of a train track, which run parallel to each other, appear to merge in the distance, so the doctrines of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, which seem separate from each other in this life, will merge in eternity. Our task is not to force their merging in this life, but to keep them in balance, And to live accordingly. End of quote. Some of you are probably wondering, is our pastor Paul is he reformed or is he Armenian? I'm about to reveal the secret. This is going to make news all over the world, I'm sure. The whole world's in tension right now. After the ad, after the break, I will make, you know, there's this an ad break. Well, I'm neither. Oh. I'm, in some ways, I am in no man's land. I'm not a five-point Calvinist, and I've just lost all the Reformed here. And I'm not a five-point Armenian, and I've just lost all the Armenians. So for another couple of you who are left, this is for you. Uh, Because you see, both systems, both the Reformed and the Armenian, are human attempts to logically understand the unexplainable when it comes to these matters. To try and grasp a concept as incredible as this, man has come up with a way to be able to teach this and and do so faithfully, both camps, from the Word of God. But I am personally uncomfortable with templates or systems or filters which are then applied to every passage of Scripture because this is not just applied to the doctrine of election. This then goes back and goes forth and it's applied to the whole of your interpretation of the Scriptures. And I've got friends on both sides. And both sides are very passionate and they both try to get me into their camp. And because of my position, because I am in no man's land, sometimes I'm not invited to speak in their churches. And some people have left our church because I'm not reformed enough and others have left the church because I'm not Arminian enough. I will say that I am much more aligned with the reformed position than the Arminian. Oh it's, it's OK. I, I don't need to logically understand how it all fits together. It is a mystery which the Apostle Paul will talk about. I can actually live with a paradox: God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I can live with a tension. But I also acknowledge how unworthy I am not only to be chosen in Him but to be used by Him to teach His word and to lead His people. And this has to, rather than lift us up and puff us up with pride because we have the right doctrine, the right church, all that, it should humble us, guys. If you believe in grace... Don't just preach about it. Live it. Live it. All the crowns that you have, all the titles and all whatever it is you have, put them down at Jesus' feet and just just worship him. Diligently read his word because it is there for us to devour it. And praise the Holy Spirit reveals to you the wonderful truth of this amazing God we have, the salvation, the gospel that we are to share with those who are lost. We are chosen in him. What an amazing truth. Amen.